Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Daisy Hay about her new book, Mr. and Mrs. Disraeli, A Strange Romance. Hi, Daisy. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. Um, one of the interesting things in doing these interviews is that we get writers in such different stages of their careers and from different fields. So I wonder if you could just start a bit by telling us about your career so far. Yes, of course. Well, I started life as a, an academic, and I am still an academic. Uh, I was working on a PhD on romantic collaboration, on quite technical things to do with the way in which the writers and the Shelley Circle influence each other's work um, when I was in my early 20s. And it became clear to me that the story that was the backstory to that PhD was really, really fascinating, the story about how these people met, about... The, the the lives they made together as well as the work they made together was a story that was of absorbing interest to me. And so rather than take a traditional track out of my PhD, I turned it into a book, into a biography um, for a general audience, which came out in 2010, a book called Young Romantics. And it was a, a method of, a, a way of writing rather, which I just, on which I became completely hooked. It was a way of telling a story which just felt intuitive and, and right to me. So I then wrote a second book, Mr. and Mrs. Disraeli, a, a dual biography of Benjamin and Marianne Disraeli. Um, both books have are informed by my academic work and by my background, and I have an academic job now. But they're motivated by a desire to tell a really good story, to find good stories in the past, and to rework those stories in a way that interests as many people as possible. And I just I just keep finding myself doing doing that. So I expect when you ask about their careers, you get lots of different answers because people write biographies for all sorts of different reasons. And mine sits at the intersection of wanting to tell stories and finding a way to make the work I do as an academic as accessible and as interesting as possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good place to be. <laughs> Um, so since the Disraelis might not be as well known among our American listeners, could you start by giving us a kind of a crash course in who they were? Yes, of course. Well, Benjamin Disraeli was Prime Minister of Britain twice, briefly once in 1868 and then for a longer period in 1874, through to about 1880. He was one of the most significant figures in the British Conservative Party in the 19th century. He really transformed it into the party that we have today, a party which is still in power, um, or rather it's in power now, I mean in power all the time. Uh, his, um, he was a charismatic, highly unusual politician. He was a novelist as well as a politician. He was born Jewish, but he was baptized as an Anglican when he was in his teens which was really crucial because without that baptism, he wouldn't have been able to sit in the House of Commons because um, Jews couldn't take the oath of allegiance in the House of Commons until late into the 1850s. So he's a very interesting figure, a very divisive figure, but one of the great political stars of the 19th century. 
and his wife Marianne was 12 years older than him. She'd been married before. She was another highly unusual, unorthodox figure. She didn't fit into the social mould of Victorian London. She was older than her husband. She was much less well-educated. She was flamboyantly dressed. She had a way of saying outrageous things. But she was an enormously important figure in his story. Much, much less well-known about than him, but someone by whom I became very fascinated as I worked on their their joint story. Why um, why did you decide to do a book about both of them as opposed to one of one or the other? Well, it's a story that starts a long time ago. When I was about 13, I read a novel called The Perfect Wife by a lady called Doris Leslie, a novel written in 1960, which told Marianne's story in good rags to Richard Sashes. <laughs> Marianne liked to maintain that she had a kind of very modest background. She maintained at one stage that she walked to work barefoot in a factory every day, or another stage she maintained that she worked as a milliner's assistant, and neither of those things were actually true, but it was part of her kind of mythologizing, part of her self-mythologizing that she went in for. The novel, The Perfect Wife, wrote about all of this, and I remember feeling very strongly that even if only a tiny bit of it was true, it was a really good story and it deserved to be told. And so I had that story at the back of my head for a long time, and then I became an academic and I wrote my first book, and as I was finishing that book, I was kept finding myself coming back to that story, but also to a broader preoccupation about what happened to romanticism, about what the young men and women who came to maturity in the decade after Shelley and Keats and Byron died did with that legacy. How do you, the question of how could you be a romantic in a world which was somehow unromantic in a newly utilitarian early Victorian age? And those two questions about whether the stories I had at the back of my head about Marianne Disraeli and the question about what happened to romanticism seemed to coalesce in the joint story of the Disraelis. And it seemed to me that they were shadowed by each other, they were revealed by each other in a way that made it really important to write about them together, that they were, that the stories of both and my understanding of both would be served if I tried to put them in the same story. Mm-hmm. There's lots and lots of books about Disraeli, there are almost none about Marianne, but lots of the books about Disraeli, what they do is they tell a public story, they tell a story in which the the points of drama, the points of climax are political, things that happen in the world, things which can be seen. I was interested in what happened to Israeli. If you tell his story in the way in which biographers in recent years have told those of women who have been hidden from history, looking for things not said, looking for moments of silence, moments of erasure, listening for the emotional equivalence, the things which happen in private life to those great moments of political crisis or achievement. So in this book, what I try to do is make what happens in the private life shape the story rather than map the private life onto a public narrative. And with that in mind, again, writing about them both felt really important. I want to come back to that idea of silences in just a second, but first of all, what sources were most helpful to you? Well, I was very lucky in that there is an enormously rich archive on the Disraelis. It's held at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, 
and it contains over 50,000 bits of paper relating to the Disraelis, and 10,000 of those bits of paper relate in some way directly to Marianne. And really, that archive of Marianne's, that private archive, as well as the elements of the Disraeli, wider Disraeli archive, which she created, those papers are the backbone of my book. It's a book made from paper, made from extensive reading of archival material. And within that collection, there are things which are extraordinarily rich. And obviously, there are kind of things which are very important, like the Disraeli's letters to each other. Those, of course, are very important. The letters that they wrote when they were courting were very important. But I also found things which were much less, I guess, much less predictably important really shaped my thinking. So, for example stories which kept emerging of other women who Marianne Disraeli knew, women who've been hidden, who have kind of lived their lives in the shadows. Physical things. There is a, a box in the Disraeli archive full of hair of the people Marianne Disraeli knew, which gave me a much, because she collected it, you know, she collected and she kept it, like lots of Victorians did. But it gives you a much more physical sense of the world that you're dealing with. She kept account books, she kept Valentine's cards, she kept menus, she kept everything. Because she, she has a very strong sense that paper makes history. And the sheer variety of the things that she kept allowed me to work with paper, but in many different dimensions, to think about not just the life which is recorded when you write letters, but the kind of messiness of the life which is recorded when you also write down how much beer your servant is allowed to drink each week and how much sugar you think is suitable to budget for in a week when you're away but your mother and your husband are in your house. All these things gave me a very thick sense of the texture of the Disraeli's lives and I'm not sure I could actually single out any one of them as being particularly important. It was the way in which they came together, which was important, I think. Um, so how did you deal with the silences in the archives? The one that jumps to mind was there was a stretch of time where you had very few or no letters from Marianne, and how do you cope with those gaps? Well, it's a very interesting question, and I don't think I have a straightforward answer. I think the, 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 the method I evolved was really just to try and listen for them, to be attentive to where they were, and to think about what the silences might tell me. And there is a huge disparity between the amount of material which survives in Disraeli's voice and the amount of material which survives in Marianne. And there are two reasons for that. The first is that he was famous in his lifetime, so his correspondents were much more likely to keep his letters than hers were. And the second reason is that she was doing the curating of his papers, so she was there. So when there are silences... What I try to do is just notice them, really, to notice the points at which there is a disparity in who gets to give an account of the past. Some of those silences in her archive occur at the points of real friction in the marriage, at points when it appears that there were, there were, there were passages of great unhappiness. So what we have is quite eloquent accounts of Disraeli's experience of that. Her experience we have just to infer. So... Sometimes in the book, I'm quite explicit about that, about the points when her voice falls silent, the points when she has nothing to say because of the way in which history has collected the story. Because that is also part of the story. It's about the story of um, about how the history of a wife is, is collected and preserved compared to the history of a famous man. So it's an imperfect method, but 
Of course, there are mysteries in any in any biography. There are always things you don't know, and I think just not trying to fill the gaps by conjecture felt like the most authentic way of addressing the, the problems of the archive. One of my favorite aspects of the book is is the one paragraph vignettes at the beginning of each chapter. Um, which is usually the story of a contemporary woman. Can you talk a bit about these vignettes, how you found them in the archive, and how you put them to use in the book? Absolutely. Well, they are a very good example of how I kept being sidetracked when I was working on these papers. And I kept thinking that what I was reading was tangential to the story I was looking for. And what kept coming up was that in Marianne's correspondence, I kept finding stories of women who I'd never heard of and who were very difficult to track down in any kind of official history of the period, but whose experiences seemed to me to add up to a significant story about life in 19th century Britain. And I, I was confounded by this. I'll give you one example. I became, I remember, you know, one kind of rainy morning opening a box and finding that it had 65 letters in it from someone called Virginia Edgar. And I hadn't heard of Virginia Edgar, and I couldn't find any trace of her in any of the the books on the Disraelis and any of the official records, anything like Burke or any any of the places I knew where to look. But I began to read, expecting to be bored by these 65 letters of someone I hadn't heard of. And I gradually worked out that she was the sister of Marianne's servant, Eliza, and that Marianne had known her, known Virginia, from her childhood in Cardiff. And as I read, what I discovered was a story of a young woman who had married an army, married a soldier, gone with him to Hong Kong, where he had been promoted, and where suddenly, in Hong Kong, she'd become a lady. She'd had five children, and then her husband had died, and she'd had to come back to Britain to find that she had nowhere to go. She was removed by her marriage and by the life in Hong Kong from the class that she came from, a class of servants and tenant farmers. But she didn't fit into any other class in Victorian Britain. And so here you have someone marooned between the social strata of an extremely stratified, class-riven society. And she had to work out how to make a life. And it just struck me as I read her letters, letters written with great intelligence and wit and humour. This was someone whose experience must speak, not just for her, but also for lots of women who were taken by marriage and removed from the world into which they were born, but not not re-established in any other network. And because I was writing a book about marriage and about the, the possibilities and the problems of Victorian marriage, it seemed to me to be really significant. Virginia Edgar emerges at one place in the Disraeli story, if you really look hard for it, because when Marianne was made a peeress in 1868 at Disraeli's instigation. She awarded Virginia Edgar a pension. She obviously seemed to understand that they were connected by the way in which their lives had been changed by marriage. And Virginia Edgar took this pension and she used it in part to educate her daughters. So the story of this person who has disappeared from history also tells a story about the changing fortunes of women in the 19th century, about women's education, about the the, the problems and the possibilities that the structures of 19th century life offered to women like this. And so she's one of the people who has a paragraph in the book. And I started quite deliberately, after I'd read about her, to look for 
these women and to try and work out whether I could find a way of telling their stories as a kind of paratext or a kind of compliment to Marianne's story to position her, my, my main character, as someone who experienced one version of what it was like to try and live a fulfilled, independent life as a woman in 19th century Britain, but to show that the luck that she had, the good fortune that she had, wasn't in any way predictable. In some ways to show how unusual Marianne was, but also to show how many other unusual stories there are hidden in the archives of, of things like the Disraeli papers. So they're there partly because I just couldn't stop thinking about them. And so it seemed like they had to go into the book somehow. Mm-hmm. And Disraeli's sister Sarah also provides a similar um different view of what women were capable of at that time or what their position was. Could you talk a bit about her? She's a very, very interesting yeah. figure. She was older than Disraeli. She is another woman of huge intellect and ambition and and and, and wit. She was also let down in some ways by marriage in the early part of the 19th century. Her fiancé died and she became the daughter at home looking after elderly parents. It's a very quiet life compared to the life that her brother lived. She wrote a novel with Disraeli, they wrote a novel together. She had literary ambitions, but really, from the 1830s onwards, she channeled those ambitions through her brother. But when her parents died again, she was suddenly cast adrift. She had nowhere to go. And she lived a very quiet life, visiting friends, living in the shadows, a life of huge contrast to Marianne's life. And this is a woman of, 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 as I said, of intellect, of ambition, but who was an, an important figure, an important figure for her family, an important figure for the way in which she shaped her brother's thinking, but who was accorded absolutely no importance because she remained unmarried by the world in which she lived. And I'm interested again in that disparity by the fact that this is someone who's story really matters. He didn't have an unhappy life, but he wasn't thought to have any kind of social relevance, really. And there was a great big phenomenon in the 19th century, which is about about the, the problem of unmarried women, about the fact that there were more women than men because of a weird demographic thing, and what it was called the women question. And Sarah Disraeli's story shows the women question is not just, you know, what happened to the poor woman who couldn't find a husband? It's why were these women of, um, you know, who are significant figures record, um, made into a kind of social irrelevance, a social problem? She died young, and Disraeli missed her very, very much. She was a huge absence, and she was one of the most important people in his life. And we know a lot about her because Disraeli really needed correspondence with whom he could write about politics without kind of fear that his views would get out and she was one of his most important correspondents she is a a very eloquent letter writer herself so again she was someone who kept re-emerging in the story as a counterpart to a counterpoint rather to Marianne so in discussing Marianne's first marriage, you mentioned the shifting perceptions of marriage during the, 19, the 1810s and 1820s and 30s. Could you talk a bit about Victorian marriage and where you see the Disraeli's marriage fitting in that view? 
Yes, I mean, it, as I say in the book, something which is in flux in this period. Marianne's first marriage was to a wealthy industrialist called Wyndham Lewis. She met him when she was 23 at a Bristol ball. She, it was a very, very good match for her in material terms. Her own background was not impoverished, but it was fairly... Um, it wasn't smart. She was the daughter of a, of a of a sailor who died when she was young. She was brought up on her grandparents' farm in Devon, in the southwest of England. And it was a huge coup for someone from such a modest background to marry an industrialist with an income of £11,000 a year. And if you just think about it, wouldn't that level of income from it, in Pride and Prejudice... Uh, Mrs. Bennett is just beside herself when it becomes possible that one of her daughters might marry Mr. Darcy, who was £10,000 a year. And Mr. Darcy is very much smarter than Wyndham Lewis was. So it's not a, a true analogy, but it's also the case that Marianne was very much less smart than the Bennett sisters. But she marries Wyndham Lewis at a point when this, the idea of marriage is in flux because a aristocratic rich marriages in the 18th century are marriages to do with contracts, to do with bringing together estates, to do with social things, to do with yoking together families. The idea of an affectionate marriage is something which only really begins to emerge as something which should dominate marriage in all classes in the late part of the 18th century. And it comes out of a kind of reaction against what are perceived to be aristocratic vices, a reaction of evangelicals against things like aristocratic habits of gambling and consorting with prostitutes of adultery. That mode of life begins to seem fall out of favour and middle-class values to do with affection, to do with temperance, begun to come to the fore. Marianne, essentially, with her first marriage, makes a marriage of convenience. She is affectionate towards Wyndham Lewis, but she is 17 years her senior, and it's a marriage made for material gain. But she isn't smart. She's not an aristocrat, neither is he. So they have to somehow make their marriage for material, made for material gain look and feel like an affectionate marriage, and that places them in a real quandary. By the time she marries Disraeli, Marianne cannot bear the idea, neither can Disraeli, that there should be a marriage of convenience. They marry because of money. Disraeli is absolutely in desperate need of a marriage to a rich widow by the time he meets Marianne because he's about to be arrested for debt, so his circumstances are really, really dire. But neither he and Marianne can square their conception of themselves by that point, a conception of themselves which they draw from novels, which they draw from this changing sense of what it means to be a hero and a heroine in 19th century Britain. They cannot bear the idea that theirs should just be a marriage of convenience. So their solution arrived at through much kind of trauma and emotional tempest is to behave as if they are the hero and the heroine of all the novels that they read and to conjure out of thin air a marriage which is based or premised on a great romance. They do this at a point when the novel, the form which makes drama out of the everyday, which turns ordinary men and women into heroes and heroines. That form comes to have its great moment in the, in the middle of the 19th century. And that, the Israelis are shaped by that. They want to be the characters out of one of those novels, so they pretend that they are. And the wonderful thing about that story is that through sheer force of will, 
They just make it come true. So that by the time they reach old age, this marriage which has begun as inauthentic and contingent has in fact become one of the great romances of the 19th century. And they are commented on by their friends, by each other, and by the general public, by newspapers, as a symbolic of... Of, of, of the possibilities of romance. So it has a happy ending in that story. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, it's it's a book in some respects about the stories we tell ourselves and about ourselves, um, and that Israelis were both adept at this. And I'm really interested in structure. And the book of your structure is one highlighting this ideas of stories. So you've got um, chapters about tall tales and tittle-tattle and fairy stories. How did you settle upon this structure for the book? Oh, through lots of trial and error and lots of lots of things not quite working out and it's hard to put my finger on it. I suppose I just as I was trying to work out how on earth to structure what feels like quite a complicated story, I tried to work out what the ideas were that were moving it were moving it forward and to take my cue from that. So as you say, the first half of the book the first section of the book is all about different kinds of storytelling. The second tape, the middle section of the book, each chapter takes its title from a work of contemporary writing, either a sto- either a, 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 either a story or a book about or a work on storytelling. It was a way, I think, of trying to, in my own head, and I hope in the heads of the, my reader, just knit the story into the fabric of 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 nineteenth-century storytelling. And to try in some ways, I suppose, to take my cue from the Disraelis, again, not to map onto them my preoccupations, but to listen to what I thought their preoccupations were and to shape the story I told about them accordingly. Do you have a favourite story about them? I don't know. One of the things I'm very struck by is the story of the hair. I'm very fascinated by the hair. Marianne cut Disraeli's hair and dyed it black every two weeks of their 30-year marriage. And uh, it was one of her kind of acts of wifely devotion. And after she died, Disraeli was going through her papers and he discovered that she had kept every lock of hair she'd ever cut from his head, box after box of the stuff. And I... I just kind of love this image of Disraeli being confronted with this archive of his own head um, in the summer of 1872. And I also love the fact that his response to it was to put it in envelopes and send it to his friends. Um, Hair is in some ways symbolic of lots of things in the Disraeli story. Her care of his hair is partly about how they understood the importance of image, the importance of self-fashioning. There's a really poignant moment when journalists who'd come to her funeral comment on the fact that Disraeli has gone grey. And, of course, the reason he's gone grey is because she has been too ill in the final stages of her life to dye his hair. By the time he reappears in public a few weeks after her death, he sorted it out. It was just a very brief moment. Um, But it it, is turned by journalists into a kind of metaphor for his suffering as as she dies. And again, it's one of those unexpected things. The reason I find the hair very fascinating is, I think, because it wasn't something I expected to become fascinated by. It's a bit repellent. It's a bit weird, this kind of 19th century fascination with hair. It's a bit unpleasant when you're working in an archive and you find yourself confronted with a box of stuff. So it was one of the things that surprised me, which I think is why it's one of the stories about them that I like. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Mr. and Mrs. Disraeli. Well, thank you for having me. 
I've been talking today with Daisy Hay about her new book, Mr. and Mrs. Disraeli, A Strange Romance. I'm Olday Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.